The Guardian. Hello, I'm Edith Chakraborty, and this is the Business Podcast. Coming up this week, the pound in your pocket and why you're not spending it. Habitat, Thorntons, TJ Hughes, Carpet Right and Jane Norman join a slew of household names closing stores, facing administration or looking to sell assets and downsize. Meanwhile, the housing market remains in the doldrums as mortgage holders fear a rise in interest rates. What will it take to inject some much needed confidence back into the British consumer? Also this week, as the Chinese Prime Minister jets in to conduct high-level trade talks, we hear from economist Ahmed Rahman on the shifting nature of global spending power. All that to come, and join me for the first half of this week's programme, I have alongside me from the Guardian's business desk, Zoe Wood and Philip Inman. Welcome to you both. Zoe, let's begin with you. Just how bad is it on the high street? Well, um, we're seeing a very grim picture emerging from the high street at the moment, but really it's a continuation of a trend that, you know, has been ongoing now for about three years. Um, there's very little growth in in retail sales at the moment, and what you're seeing is a struggle for market share. And as a result, the weaker players are dropping out. Is it the case that... Cause because companies like Jane Norman and TJ Hughes, they weren't ever sort of top of the pack when it came to retailing brilliance. Is it just a it's, it's just crap shops closing up? Is, is that what's going on? Um, that's probably a little bit unfair. You know, there are some weak concepts within there, but there's two separate things happening there. Jane Norman was once uh, a very strong fashion brand on the high street, but it's one of these companies that has fallen foul of the credit crunch. It was owned by Bauger, the investment uh, vehicle that went bust in the credit crunch, as well as an Icelandic bank. It was also refinanced. It had debts as big as its turnover. And in this market, it's just not sustainable. It had debts of 140 million. Possibly trading was weak at the moment. It just can't service that kind of debt in that size of company. Now, Mary Portas, who I think in the next New Year's honours list will be made officially Queen of Shops, is meant to be consulting to David Cameron on what can be done about retail. Do you, is, there any, is there really anything that government can do? Well, I think she better get a move on because I think about 25% of the high street has disappeared <laughs> since she was given the mandate. I think she's been quite a controversial appointment because I think retailers feel very strongly about this issue and there's been numerous missed opportunities in the past to tackle what are, you know, well-discussed issues in the retail sector about rent. But I mean, she's, she's been given an incredibly tough job to do. The growth of the internet means a lot of retailers have probably got 20% more stores than they need. And the thing is, they can't just close them tomorrow. There's a cost attached with closing stores. And I don't think she can wave a magic wand to resolve these overnight. Um, but good luck to her. Phil, what's all this telling us about the great British consumer? That the great British consumer is... Um uh, struggling is, um, uh, lacks hope. I think hope is the one of the main factors. You know, they were hopeful that we were coming out of the recovery, and uh, there's a strong body of opinion that says last year's budget, uh, the first budget of this uh, coalition government, dented that hope. Uh, then the uh, comprehensive spending review came along in October and further dented that hope. This is the hope that says that things are going to get ba- better in the next six months, a year. And if you look at the uh, surveys, it says that people are not thinking that. They're thinking it's going to take an awful lot longer for things to get better. And so they're going to keep their hands in their pocket and they're not going to spend. Where else are we seeing this apart from shops? 
well, you know, people are having to spend on essentials because they've gone up so much. So people are going to having to spend more on bread and petrol and all these other things. And that, of course, eats into their ability to go to TJ Hughes and buy a dress or buy, you know, new shoes or whatever it is. You delay those kinds of purchases because you're spending so much more on essentials. OK, so that's the essentials and the kind of discretionary items. Uh, our colleague Jill Trainer also had a story this week about fears over loan repossession, mortgage repossessions. Well, that's a hotly contested debate. That that, that was based on a, a position by a, a banker who said that basically there's a tsunami of people on the edge of negative equity, a few rises in interest rates, and they can't afford their repayments anymore. Uh, Bank of England governor says that's uh, nonsense, um, that uh, if interest rates go up, then a lot of it will have to be absorbed by mortgage rates, i.e. mortgage rates won't track in base rates. My feeling is that uh, people are pretty highly leveraged, and those at the bottom that, of the that is they've still got lots of debts. Sorry, they, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm straying into jargon, aren't I? They, they've borrowed an awful lot of money in order to purchase a house. So they're the latecomers. They've purchased a house since 2000, and they're pretty well up to their mortgage limit. A lot of these people got out second mortgages in the in the boom, and they're pretty sensitive to changes and they could be calling in the receivers on their own home if interest rates go up very much and I think that while the Bank of England governor doesn't want to spook people by saying that yes there is a tsunami and agreeing with this banker that there is a tsunami of people who will go bust if we put mortgage rates up the fact is he isn't putting mortgage rates up he isn't putting base rates up because at the end of the day he is paranoid that it will tip the economy over. So you look at businesses I tend to look at bits of paper with numbers on and what's puzzling me about the kind of picture you're laying out is we've already gone through an almighty financial crisis. We've gone through a recession. If you look at the latest kind of numbers, just to contrast with Phil, if you look at the latest numbers on unemployment, say, it seems to be getting marginally better. And yet there are a whole series of these retailers now putting up distress signs. What's going on? Well, I think the thing is we're, we're now faced with the sins of our past I think you know the retail sector became quite bloated during the good times a lot of people were living beyond their means just as they bought an expensive house they had access to credit and I think a lot of those credit lines have been drawn in by banks now but also people are just cognizant of the fact that they've got a fixed budget now and you know they stray beyond that at their peril and that's why you're seeing this contraction in retail because it, you know it's just there are too many shops in the UK and at the moment there isn't enough spending power to feed them all. What will our high street look like in five years' time, ten years' time? Well, I mean, I suppose my pet theory is that maybe there'll be lots of change of use and, you know, more flats. Well, um, on the high street? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we talk all the time about a housing shortage. It seems to me, rather than constantly come up with a sort of... It's as if... Some people talk as if the, the high street exists in a bubble. and it. But the problem... You know, high streets live or die by people shopping there. The reason your high street's dying is because you're not patronising it. So why not think about maybe... You see a lot the way supermarkets expand now is through mixed use developments. The only way they get planning permission is by flats above. Why not think creatively about redeveloping high streets and, you know, where maybe there's 10 shops have three, but maybe those three have got more chance of surviving than 10. Phil? Well, I think you're, you, there are different high streets, aren't there? I mean, you, if you go out into county towns, they're all killing each other to get 
shoppers to come and they're competing with the other local county towns and they're tearing up their high streets investing huge amounts of money trying to refresh their high streets and do what I'm sure Mary Portis is going to come along and do and talk about car parking and all those other sorts of issues where they've got terrible constraints in an old town where in a shopping district out of town there are plenty of car parking spaces and discount stores and all the rest of it i'm sure that in town although this sounds very kind of middle class she she uh answer you're going to find that people have changed their shopping habits so they're not shopping monday to friday they're shopping at the weekend they want to go to market so you'll see that there won't be so many shops like um uh, zoe says there'll be houses on the high street but then on a few days a week you'll be given over to markets which is often, hang on this know, is some kind of gardenista's dream i don't which, which, well it happens up and down the country you know <laughs> You go to Weymouth or, you know, or Scarborough or anywhere, they've got huge markets outside their towns where people go to shop, you know, and they're open on Thursdays and Saturdays or whatever. But there's no, but you can't sustain a nine to five shop through the week. It's just not viable for some, not all. But, you know, some of these big, long shopping streets, you don't just want to have every house, you know, every other shop closed. You're going to have to do something, as I was saying, you're going to have to have converted use and think a bit differently because the consumer is changing their habits of how they shop and when they shop if if what zoe's describing is correct if she's basically saying that we're all shopped out and that we need to reduce the number of shops we've got is this part of this rebalancing the british economy that we keep hearing about that we move away from spending and borrowing we move towards making saving well, there's two sides to that. One is says that there's a, this is just a lull, right? We're just in a particular recession. As soon as every, the good times come back, people are going to do all the same rubbish all over again. They're going to borrow, they're going to spend, they're going to have a party. You know, that's the mentality of lots of people who want to have a hedonistic lifestyle um, or at least have a affluent lifestyle, keeping up with the Joneses and all the rest of it. The other is that you want, the point you've just made is that people are get, lots of people, more people are getting fed up with that idea and don't want to live quite so extravagantly particularly i suppose there's lots of things like travel cars things like that are going to get more and more expensive i mean i think it's wrong all high streets aren't created equal and i think it's wrong to tire them all with the same brush because you know there are some parts of the country where the high street is thriving but what you've got is secondary towns and locations where retail you know the rent payments are too hard too, too high to service the sales that they receive. So I think we shouldn't lump them all together. And the other thing is to remember, out the corner of your eye, there's a massive hoover that's a supermarket sucking sales out of the high street. So it's not really about uh, a massive contraction. I mean, probably the, whole, the retail economy will be flat this year, but sales will have been diverted and they'll be diverted to supermarket tills. When... Businesses. Landlords as well. So you could talk about landlords. I mean, you just mentioned it then, didn't you? They're, landlords they're, you know, can they do expect things. To, yeah. They expect too much, as do the debt holders. You know, the debt holders have bought something that's not worth what it was. They should take a haircut. We've heard this term haircut, which is basically they should have a, um, a, reduction. a reduction. Yeah. When businesses go up for sale, Zoe, uh, that often leads the way to quite a big change in the kind of composition of an industry. When Jibao was from China was in Downing Street this week talking about trade between Britain and China. Could we expect more Chinese and Indian and Brazilian competitors on, that, on in our retail industry? Well, I mean, I, th- I think probably they'd be mad unless they know something we don't. I mean, 
I don't know, there's there's not a huge track record of success of international retailers coming into the UK because for all the problems we describe, we are one of the most successful retail markets in the world, like the US. It's very cutthroat. You really need to know to know what you're doing. And unless, as Philip said, the property t- dynamic changed, a Chinese or Brazilian retailer might think, my goodness, these overheads are ridiculously high. I have to make s- such a, you know, the sales density is required to make those stores pay, they might think, well, no, I'll try a lower cost uh, market in mainland Europe that's less developed. So the problem is the UK is saturated with retail and perhaps if landlords change their stance and maybe review upward only rents or accept monthly rental payments, that could change the dynamic. But until that happens, I think, um, you know, you enter at your peril. Well, you can have your say on our website about the embattled high street and confident consumerism at guardian.co.uk forward slash business. This is The Business with Aditya Chakraborty. Now, when it comes to the world economy, the pitch we're given is normally fairly straightforward. Countries in the West and the North have traditionally fared better, industrialising sooner and becoming wealthier. Countries in the East and the South have traditionally been poorer. And the way out of that, economists have always told us, is trade. If countries like China and India trade with Britain and America, they get better too. But that's not quite the case, as Ahmed Rahman, an economist at the United States Naval Academy, has been telling me. His quest is for a unified growth theory, and the role of trade in narrowing or widening disparities is complicated. I began by asking him to explain the gulf between North and South. So the story is one of an accident of fortune. Uh, that the North was able to uh, develop high-end technologies, specialize in high-end manufacturing, based on initial conditions that had existed a millennia beforehand. Specifically, the fact that they were relatively more well-endowed with a skilled workforce, and once the forces of globalization and trade and technologies really took off in the late 18th century, the forces were in motion for them to develop technologically and actually surpass the South, uh, or southern economies, peripheral economies. So how does that play out? Give me a couple of examples. So an example would be the fact that the UK, starting in, say, the 1850s, were able to switch from basic textile technologies, textile production, to much more high-end areas in, in, in uh, steel and other metallurgies in high-skilled areas, more service-oriented areas, and leaving their trading partners, say in the southern Europe or, in fact, in Asia, with those textile productions, right? So as, as you see today, it's uh, India or Pakistan or Bangladesh that are the ones who are actually producing the textiles. 200 years ago, that was the technological forefront, but these Western European countries have been able to switch, and big part of economic history is trying to figure out why that switch took place. And why is what you're saying new? What's controversial about it? Well, I think any story of divergence is going to be controversial. I think the main controversial aspect is the fact that we don't rely on institutions to explain divergence. Uh, As I mentioned in the introduction, most studies rely on some aspect of governance or geography or differences in culture or differences in financial regulation to explain why some countries were able to become a lot more wealthy than others. What we're suggesting is, in fact, you can have 
the same types of institutions, the same types of, of geography and culture, and don't rely on those heterogeneities, but in fact suggest this slight difference in the early in the early parts of industrialization, and that has the divergence built into the theory. Are there examples of countries which actually do look quite similar, which do have similar institutions or cultures, and yet they end up taking very different paths? Well, some would argue that, in fact, India had very similar institutions with uh, with England, particularly since actually it was the English that transported their institutions over to India. So I think a big part of this divergence puzzle is in fact why India failed to keep up, really dramatically failed to keep up with Western European progress, given the fact that uh, the technologies that India had available to them were the same as those in England. In fact, I have some some colleagues that actually study this very rigorously and suggest that actually it was English managers who came over to India to try to manage those textile production processes. And for one reason or another, they simply could not keep up technologically or productively. Well, when you mention Britain and India, one thing that we think about is the empire, and we think of the, the empire always often caricatured as kind of process of extraction of value from India by the British. Does it, that doesn't seem to play much of a role in your story. So we try to avoid this, this the story of exploitation. Usually um, many stories of divergence relate out to, uh, let's say, why the West was good. In other words, good institutions, good this and that. Or, in fact, divergence based on why the West was bad. Uh, well, it was an exploitation story. It was a colonialization story. Uh, surely in history that plays a role. Uh, well, again, what we wanted to motivate, however, was even in the absence of that, you could still have massive income differences around the world. Now, mapping our story to what actually transpires, let's say between England and India, becomes much more complicated. What we're trying to do is develop an overarching narrative, the general sort of uh, dynamics, and then actually we can come back to individual case-by-case -case studies to see how well that, those particular cases fit the dynamics or whether you know, each case has certain idiosyncrasies that uh, need to be addressed. So where does your story take us? How does it play into current policy debates? Well, I think um, this is what's interesting is that I have always been a, uh, you know, being trained as an economist, you're a free market thinker. You think of uh, trade as being good. You think of the flow of knowledge and technologies as good. Financial integration uh, is, is, is good and so on and so forth. Uh, what this seems to suggest is, in fact, there is room for policy in terms of thwarting trade because trade in the long run can produce some detrimental effects. Uh, similarly with technologies, to allow technological developments to run their course might lead to some perverse outcomes. Technologies that actually empower the unskilled sounds like a good thing, except for the fact that it makes people remain unskilled. So there's a perverse incentive there to actually have a lot more children and keep them unskilled and not develop your educational system, which in the long run might actually harm um, your transition to modernity. Uh, so I think there's in our our study actually would suggest there is some room for policy, and we need to look at look carefully at to what aspects of capitalization and unfettered markets are good, and in what instances can they actually be tweaked to allow a better outcome. What I what I find particularly interesting uh, about what you said is that. Um, the, the, the argument for free trade has moved from being free trade uh, sometimes being just good for everyone who takes part to being good for poor countries because it enables them access to rich countries. And now you're saying something different. You're saying free trade can keep poor countries poor. Yeah, so this is what's... So in the basic, we call it a, a, a you know, trade that's based on factor differences. The fact that these uh, poorer countries have a lot of unskilled labor 
there's no doubt that actually in the short term trade actually benefits those unskilled workers. Uh, it raises their standard of living uh, more so than it than trade than without the trade. Uh, what we a growth economist, however, would look longer term and say, wow, that's true for one generation of workers. Uh, what's happening to subsequent generations is that uh, it keeps them sort of unskilled, and so this is much more. When you look longer term, then it changes the um, the implications for free trade. And the other thing that a, a critic might quibble out is it doesn't really explain the emergence of places like Bangalore. Right. So actually, what we call this is a unified growth theory, which technically should unify the past with the immediate present. Uh, now, the extraordinary things that have taken place in the last few decades that really sort of confound long-run growth economists. But I would say that it doesn't um, negate the relevance of the theory. Rather, I would say um, we have to look at the particular case, let's say, of Bangalore and what India has been able to do to create a Bangalore in the first place. I imagine that um, the government played a heavy role, potentially, in sort of fostering development in particular industries, infant industry protection, industrial policy, etc., and only now do we see India sort of opening up its markets. So India has always been a fairly closed-off environment. And I potentially, I don't want to say this with definity, but there's a potential that that closed environment actually now allows India to prosper much more than it could otherwise have done. So to sum up, I'm with an economist who's talking about the role of tar tariffs might play, the role of industrial strategy might play, and possibly the role of keeping fertility down. <laughs> uh, yes, I would have to say. And again, I'm... It's striking to me, uh, again, coming from my free market sort of ideology and, and basic principles to, to, to come to this, but I would have to say in the grand scheme of things, uh, I cannot discount the fact that some of those things actually probably have motivated history in some respects. Ahmed Rahman there. And that's all we've got time for today. My thanks to Phil Inman, Zoe Wood and Ahmed Rahman. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Aditya Shakaborty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.